Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, the time value of money, I will finish up the ratios uh, from last time and then we'll get into the new topic area. And I would imagine that I'll have a surprise quiz on Monday of next week. Uh, totally a surprise, of course. But let me uh, get this up here. We will look at the numbers briefly, as we always do. And I won't even ask if this is a bear or a bull day. It's just so flat. It's just drifting. There's nothing really big right now. No, no news that's moving the markets. And it's just sort of like in this wait and see attitude. It's just like uh, nothing big. There was kind of a bull surge there, as you can see that hump in the spark charts. You see that bull surge, but it fizzled out. I'm gonna look here real quick, see what the volume is. Oh my. I mean, we're almost, to, uh, near, we're nearing the end of the day. In a normal day, 3.8 uh, billion shares on the S&P 500. And today, only a little more than a billion. So it's just a really quiet day on the streets. Just one of those days when uh, every, the traders are just staying back, just waiting for something exciting to happen, you know, like a nuclear war or something like that. Uh, going back over here, just to the big charts, you can see that oil is showing some strength, but that surge there is dropped off, and uh, I doubt if it'll go much higher than where it is now. Like I said, longer run, it's not gonna do anything big. Uh, I don't foresee it roaring to life, but we will see gas prices go up some here in the near future. Uh, running over here, gold. Gold had a little bit of a pull up, but it wasn't anything spectacular. It it's not really maybe a third of a percent or something like that. Nothing to write home about and silver a little up. But the 10-year bond, pretty much flat for the day. There was a spike upward in yields, price going down, and then the price, the yields dropped off again, price going up. As you can see, we're not even a basis point. We're a third of a basis point of movement. Again, the stock markets are quiet. The bond market is quiet. Everyone is just sort of sitting around waiting for something exciting to happen. And going clear over here to have a look at the, uh, well, the Nikkei was actually up pretty strong, but if you can see it, the surge was earlier in the day. And then about mid-morning, it just flattened out. No more news to push it one way or the other. So it just drifts on inertia at, the, at one level. Now, the, once that had closed, we had the London open, and London just sort of slowly ground its way down through the day, three quarters of a percent down uh, by the end of the day. So it's really though, I mean, it's like everyone's waiting to see what happens next. Uh, the Fed is not expected to make any dramatic moves on interest rates, which would have an impact. And you've got company news coming out, but none of, none of the company news is anything big right now. It's just like a dead day on the street. I do want to look at one that I've looked at before, NVIDIA, NVDA. There's sort of a scandal building on that one, but it's really not anything to, big on that. So, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know what to show you that's exciting on a day like this except where I'm losing my shirt on that stupid uh, bet I took right there, SPH. And it just goes to show you that logic doesn't always make the mar the markets don't always do what seems to be obviously logical. So there's that, it just irritates the hell out of me. But I do wanna go back here, quick look at Kellogg. 
I'm going to pull up those, that sheet that I was doing last time. Once I finish it, I'll put it into your uh, files, and you can use that sort of like a template for a quiz or an exam. You're, you're allowed to use Excel on, and templates that I give you, or if you want to build your own for exams and quizzes. There's nothing wrong with that. So Kellogg up a little bit today, nothing spectacular, a quarter of a percent, bullish day. And that allows us to move in here. One thing I'm, I'm just curious, I'll show you why here in a minute. Let me get a, really, is it that hard for me to get a calculator there? I'm going to look at this real quick here. I'm going to look at the, here, the payout ratio. The company paid a $2.40 per share dividend on $2.50 of earnings. Now I'm going to take $2.40 divided by $2.50. 96% of it was paid out in dividends. Is that even right? Yeah? I mean, the company is just basically giving most of the money that it makes for the shareholders back to the shareholders. It kept only about 4% according to the dividend. Now, there's other factors that play in there, and I'll talk about that here in a little while. But while I'm at it, let me pull back up the Kellogg's financial ratios. And if you want to follow along with me, just real quick here, if you want to grab these, ratio, grab this, these financials yourself, they are at SCC. I'm not going to download it again, .gov. And if you go over there on the filings selection in the horizontal menu at the top, company filing search, you get Kellogg. And the 10K filing, interactive data. And then you just get view the Excel document. Now, get that routine. Practice it yourself pulling up financial statements. Because like I said, I might just out of nowhere on, a, on an exam say, all right, what is this number for some company? Some, I'll give you the ticker symbol. And that would mean that you would have to be able to go in and get these yourself. Find, these document, find this document yourself. So you just see the same pattern every time. SEC.gov, come filings, company filing search, type in the number, the ticker symbol, and then go from there. Forgive me. Oh, okay, there. Much better. Okay, now we'll go on here. And, uh, ah, there we go. Okay, now. And again, I'm going to pull up the. I'm going to bring up this template uh, and put it. Oh, I'll say the template, and I'll put it into your files in uh, Canvas, in the files folder in Canvas. It'll just say financial statements dash Kellogg, and you'll be able to see this yourself. Um, going back. Oh, let me pull this up too. That financial ratios sheet. Uh, bear with me one minute here while I mute this so that you can get this. You should make sure that you have this saved as a PDF or printed out. This, I'll show you where it is here. FIL 240, files. Whoops, let me back up here. Student view. This is how you will see it. Okay, so in your file, some of you had sent me messages over the weekend, how do I go to this? And I'm quite sympathetic. Canvas, for, for everyone loving the thing better than VeggieNet, it has some real quirks in it, and I'm finding out more about those quirks. Um, financial rate, well, there they are. I put them up there. The, this one you're seeing, and then I'll build it and re put it back up there. Financial analysis formulas. This uh, document right here. Well, that sucked. Let me get. Let me draw it up as a as an actual download. Download it. 
And if you don't know how to do this, one of the reasons I'm doing this is so that if you're not familiar with how things work in uh, Canvas, then you can just go to your downloads. I said you can go to your downloads. Huh. It won't let me go over there. It won't let me pull it into the visual. Oh, there it is. Okay. Now, if you go into your downloads, you'll find it there. Really? That was not what I wanted to have happen. Let me try that again. It was supposed to download. Why didn't it do that? You hit the wrong one. I hit the wrong one? You did. Okay, fine. Don't get old. Before you get to my age, just put yourself out of your misery. Downloads? Is that it? Oh, the. I'm just testing you to see if you're watching what I'm doing here. Quit it. Financial analysis formula. Okay. Downloads. <coughs> well, there it is. Good. Okay. There we go. Anyway, so put it, save it as a file on your computer or print it out. And this you can bring to quizzes and the exam. Just don't put any extra on it. You get, you're getting two note cards for your, for your midterm. And, no, you're getting one for your midterm and you're getting uh, two for your final. And so this is an extra thing that you have, just the formulas themselves. Now off this, like I said, I'm not really all that big on having you show me that you can use a calculator and calculate a formula. What I am interested in is, can you interpret a formula? Can you tell me what happened? Okay, suppose I told you that, well, I'll, I'll get to it in a minute. Okay. The current ratio fell, okay? How would you, what would you say happened? Well, if the current ratio fell, does that mean that the company has more liquidity or less liquidity? The answer is it would have less. What would cause the uh, ratio to fall? Well, I'm looking at its current assets over current liabilities. So obviously either current, current assets went down or current liabilities went up. That would be how you would interpret it. And what would that mean for liquidity? Well, if current assets are sliding against current liabilities, that should actually increase the free cash flow because you're accumulating liabilities that you're not paying. So that means that you're building your, your uh, liquidity or you're building up your free cash flow. Those are the kinds of questions, and I'll go through more of that as time goes on here. But for now, kill that off and get out of this. And I might just leave this up here just so I can reference it as I go along here. Okay, now we've got the for Kellogg. We got the current quick, which is also a quick ratio, which is called the acid test and the burn ratio. As you can see, well, maybe not. I shouldn't be that be like that. This is indicating that the company's liquidity is actually sliding. Is becoming less liquid. Uh, it, it, it is a non-liquid company. That's not unusual for large old companies. They build up such a massive fixed asset base that liquidity itself becomes fairly trivial compared to the scale of the company itself. Some of you maybe have traveled around the country or the world and you see these giant companies, their, their facilities are just un, unspeakable in their scale. And uh, you see this massive fixed asset base that is the hallmark of a big old company. And as such, those kinds of companies, their liquidity is going to look rather uh, thin compared to younger companies that hold on to more of their liquidity to pay their bills 
so that's not unusual for these old companies. Good heavens, I think if you look at some of the big oil companies, their current quick and burn ratios are very low too. But anyway, gross margin. These are the profitabilities, gross operating and net. Gross is how much, and again, make sure you have this in your notes. Gross margin, how much, how many, how much out of every dollar that took, came into the cash register survived paying the wholesale cost of that stuff. It's what you've got after you pay your wholesale costs. And then the operating margin out of every dollar, how much do you have that came into the cash register, how much do you have after you pay all of your bills? Uh, all of your operating bills. Not just your wholesale, but your selling general and administrative expenses. Everything that operates, that pays for operations of the company. And as you can see with Kellogg, that's about, that's less than 11 cents is still surviving at that point. And then your net margin after you pay your interest expense and you pay your uh, taxes, that last number is important. That's how much of every dollar survived to the point where it belongs to the shareholders. Remember that the debt all the liabilities have prior claim. They have to be taken care of in, a t in, in their due, and how much is left after that. Well, in the case of this company, Kellogg, about six and a quarter cents was left out of every dollar of sales. That's not unusual. You'll see companies as low as a penny on the dollar survives to the shareholders. Some companies, especially service companies, sometimes they can have really high net margins. Don't let those fool you because those companies have massive opportunity costs that aren't included in accounting statements. But nevertheless, you know, it's one of those things you say, okay, what's the industry average? Then you also ask, what is the history of these numbers? Is, uh, is, is it falling? Is it rising? Is it stable? So there, it's not just enough to look at the number. You have to look at its context as well. But on we trod. Now here's a number down here. Now we're going to go to the debts. The debt to total assets. Now different Analysts and different textbooks will tell you a different, possibly different ways to count this. Generally, what we take is long term. Okay, look over here at this sheet. We generally take for this, see this debt, total debt to total assets. Generally, we just look at the long term debt to total assets. There are other kinds of debt that you'll see in the balance sheet. And a lot of times for this kind of, an, of a calculation, all we'll look at is long-term debt. <coughs> Excuse me, by that name. So I'll say equals, oh, two equals, equals, and I'll go to the consolidated balance sheet. And I'm gonna feel around here a little bit. See that line right there? That's the one that oftentimes we use, is just the long-term debt. Others will say, no, 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 use all of your long-term liabilities. And there's, a, there's good reason to argue about, i uh, say that, but notice that in a company like this, the long-term debt, those 20-year, 30-year bonds, dominate all of the long-term liabilities. The lease liabilities, the pension, deferred income taxes, they do, this dominates them, is the long-term debt. So I'm going to use that one and divide it by the total assets. Total assets. There. In other words, the whole company is the total assets. It's whole, the whole company. And that 
we divide the total debt by that. So what we're saying is that about 29% of this company's total assets is chewed up in debt. Sort of like looking at someone like uh, someone like you, what is your total value? Your your total value and then saying how much of that total value as a percent is the long-term debt that you're carrying. This number is difficult because it has two different sides to it. The higher the long-term debt, the riskier the company gets. It might not have enough money to pay the interest on that debt in a timely manner. But at the same time, the higher the total debt is, the long-term debt, the more the equity makes. It's called gains to leverage. In fact, a little later in the semester, I will show you how you can use long-term debt to become a millionaire several times over within a period of a few years. It is, it is done. Uh, quite a bit and in some cases a lot of cases you win in some cases you just get creamed on it but the higher the debt load the, the more you use debt in total financing of an operation the more the equity return is let me ask you this madam have you ever heard of a term called OPM you haven't you Oh, we gotta get you some financiers. Ma'am, have you ever heard of it? It's other people's money. That's how you become very, very wealthy in investments. You use only a tiny bit of your own money, but then you use the vast majority of the funding of the projects comes from other people's money. You see, because when you use debt, there's a fixed amount you repay, what you borrowed, and a fixed interest rate. But the upside, anything above that, is all yours. It's all gravy on the mashed potatoes. So that's why using debt creates what we call leverage, and that's how, come, that's how a lot of people have become millionaires, is through that trick. So if I had $100,000, and I had a $100,000 house that I thought was going to appreciate, 10% in a year. I don't borrow $100,000. Uh, I don't use my $100,000 because all I'd make is $110,000. But if I borrowed $90,000 <coughs> and use only $10,000 of my own money, when it goes up to $110,000, I pay back what I made, uh, the $100,000 and the interest on it. Okay. And then all the rest of that would be mine. So for $10,000, I would gain far more than I would if I put in 100,000. So I take my 10,000 and I do that with 10 properties, 10 houses, and let them all rise in value. I borrow 100,000. Uh, I borrow 90 times 10, 900,000. And then I am probably going to turn my $100,000 into a couple hundred thousand dollars in just a year. <sighs> Enough of that. Now, here's the other trick. Here's the other problem, though. Times interest earned. Okay, down here on the income statement. See here? Operating profit is otherwise known as earnings before interest and taxes. otherwise known as EBIT. That's the key. This is how much money the company has right before it pays its interest. And so if I take that number, EBIT, or operating income, and I divide it, well, 
let me find it again first here, and then I divide it by how much I pay in interest, I get how many times over I can pay my interest. In the case of Kellogg, with the money that is available right before I pay my interest expense, I can pay the interest expense seven and a half times over. That's what it says. How many times over, how many times I can pay the interest. And in Kellogg's case, it's 7.5 times. Now, is that good or bad? You'd have to look at the numbers, but one thing is for sure. The closer that number falls toward one, the scarier it gets. Because if the number, if EBIT, I'm sorry, if times interest earned is below one, the company is in default on something. And that's the end of the company. Because if it can't pay its interest on its debt, then the debt holders will simply drive the company into bankruptcy. They'll just knock it down, uh, say, oh, that's it, you didn't pay us, game over. And then the company runs screaming to a bankruptcy court and seeks protection in Chapter 11 and all that begins. So you want it to be well above one. Have a nice distance. Why do you want a nice distance? Well, because if sales decline for some reason, you want to have a safe buffer so that you don't end up with this driving down under one. However, just like I said before, if it, well, if it's too low, bad. If it's below one, real bad. But if it's too high, you are, the company is not using gains to leverage. Companies that have, you, you'll find companies, well, reputable companies, that have times interest earned of 20, 30. That tells us the company isn't using debt effectively. If it borrowed more money, it could do more stuff, which would increase return on equity. So it's a two-sided sword here. This is a ratio too low, bad, too high, not good. Make sure you get this down, okay? Because I, I find ways to ask questions like this on tests and quizzes. Okay, asset activity. Now, the average collection period, I'm not going to do because I don't want to go. What you have to do to find this is look for your uh, credit sales. And that can be a pain in the butt. Your credit, your credit sales, and then you have to divide it by 365 to see the number of days. Like, for example, if the average credit sales for, this, for Kellogg was uh, $300 million. Divide that by 365, you get your average collection period, number of days. Okay, I'm not going to do it. They can kiss my butt. Okay, now let's go to this one. This one's hot these days. As a matter of fact, I'm just spending time in my short-term financial management class talking about inventory turnover. Now what you do here, well, instead of flapping my jaws, let me show you the formula here. Inventory turnover. You take sales divided by inventory. In other words, how many times over in a year did Kellogg, in the year, did Kellogg completely clear its inventory and buy it back and buy new? So in this case, what I would do is I would take sales, so I would say equals sales on the income statement, net sales, divided by inventory on the balance sheet. So Kellogg turned its inventory over eight and three quarters time, and two thirds time. In other words, it turned its inventory over almost nine times 
It cleared out all of its inventory and brought new inventory in. Now, there, generally, there is a belief that the fast, the higher this number, the better. Because the faster you turn over inventory, the less inventory space you need to hold the inventory. If you have, you clear your inventory out twice every year, that would mean that you'd have to have bigger warehouses than if you cleared it out nine times every year. So that's, there, there's this general philosophy that the higher the inventory turnover ratio, the better. In fact, we, there's a kind of inventory management system called just-in-time. Have any of you ever heard of it? Yeah, they, it's Japanese, kind of from a Japanese idea. They don't have inventory, like their car manufacturers don't have inventory. When they need a car door, they have a car door brought in from the company that's built near them that makes car doors. You need a uh, windshield for this new car, order it, bring it in, put it on, so that there's never any inventory in the operation. It's a zero inventory, cost of inventory, great stuff. We tried it and it was a disaster. Here's why. In order for this to work, you have to have your suppliers in a ring, virtually a ring around the main production facility so that they can immediately bring stuff to you. Well, we tried that. And all these companies, we got them to, uh, a car company got all of these suppliers to get their operations built right around this, this main facility. And then when the main facility went under, the whole ring went under with it. And the ripple effects in the, in the city, and I won't mention the city, but the rip, ripple effects in the whole city were staggeringly bad because all of these operations had put their eggs into one little basket. And so all of these employees, not just of the main company, but of all the suppliers, they went under too. And that, was, that, that city just collapsed. There was no diversity of employment in that ring and in the communities around it, and so it was a catastrophe. Okay, now there's another problem too with high inventory, just getting back from that, let's just say we have high inventory turnover ratios. This was a big thing in the 2010, uh, 2010s. Get that inventory ratio, uh, ratio up, uh, turnover ratio up. Get the inventory in, get it out. Get the inventory in, get it out. Well, then we had the lockdown and the supply chain disruptions. So you'd sold all your inventory because you get that inventory sold and then we'll just order more. What happens when you don't have any more inventory that you can order because the suppliers are not providing? That was what caused a magnification of the supply chain effects. That's why you couldn't get toilet paper at the damn store. That's why you couldn't get, I couldn't get my favorite cheese. My cats suffered because they had to get low-end cat food. Because the inventories at these big grocery stores, they turned it over so fast they had to order constantly and then they couldn't get any more in. If they'd had bigger warehouses with lots more inventory that didn't turn over so fast so that they didn't wipe out their inventory so many times a year, that those shortages would have been much lighter than they were. It was this inventory control policy, high inventory turnover ratios that made the uh, those stockouts on the shelves of grocery stores and other uh, retail locations, that's what made it so bad, was because the, there was no inventory to uh, tap into when you sold out your original amounts. And when they ordered, well, those companies didn't have inventory because their inventory turnover ratios were so high speed.
Yeah, about that. So, yes, it's good to have a high turnover ratio, but it's not good if it's too high. Overall, this is a relatively robust inventory turnover ratio. In other words, it's, it's, it's up there. However, there's a reason for that with a company like Kellogg. Madam, have you ever eaten year-old Kellogg's Corn Flakes? No. Well, I have. They're stale. It was not fun. My, my Frosted Flakes, you know, Tony Tiger, they're great. No, they weren't. They were, ugh, they're meh. Okay? You see, with a food company, you actually have to turn over the inventory because it, you don't want it setting around for too long or because it, there's uh, spoilage. So you have to look at the industry that something is, uh, that a company is in to know what is normal for that kind of a company. With companies where the inventory has a long shelf life, they can have longer turnover rate, high, uh, lower inventory turnover ratios. Companies that have shorter uh, shelf life for their inventory, they're going to have to have higher inventory turnover ratios. Now, total asset turnover. This is an odd measure. It, 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 more or less what it says is, how many times did you turn over the whole company in a year? In other words, how many times over did you expend the company, its total assets, and bring them back online? Now, obviously, that's not what happened. It's more like an imaginal, imagine this kind of thing. So you say, equals your sales divided by your total assets. And when you do that one, yeah. <laughs> Actually, this number is sometimes a two or a three. That's a little bit weird, but maybe about every year in a couple of months, this company flipped, uh, turned the whole company over and replaced it. And like I said, it didn't really happen. That didn't really happen, but it's more one of those speculative things. You'll see total asset turnover. You notice the formula for it. And this gets back into something else I need to be talking more about. A company that has high sales but is working on a low total asset base will have a high total asset turnover ratio. However, as companies get older, they build up more and more of the company, the fixed assets of the company. Well, their sales don't keep up with that. Obviously, you wouldn't want them to. So that, that total asset turnover ratio is normally going to slide as time goes on. It's just going to do that, you know? <sighs> okay. Now, these are the price-to-earnings ratio and the market-to-book. And the price-to-earnings ratio you would look at the price of the stock right now divided by the current earnings. And that, of course, surprisingly enough, well, did I kill it? Well, let's go back to, let's call back, go back here to Yahoo. This is one of those where I'm going to do Kellogg. God, that irritates me. Okay, Kellogg, look at that. That I took. Okay, now you notice that this is we call it a market ratio, and not surprisingly, these reporting services put this up front. Here's your PE ratio right now. Take the price of the stock divided by the earnings per share, and you get the uh, price earnings uh, ratio. Uh, let me do that. Sorry. Okay, price earnings ratio. Remember I told you about 30 is normal these days, not undervalued, not overvalued. If the price goes enough below the uh, earnings per share, 
That tells us that those earnings would support a better price, a higher price. And that's why, like I said, you choose your number. I say about 30. The price should be about 30 times the earnings. That's, that's generally now considered to be fair uh, intrinsic value. But if the price per share slides too far, then it's saying that these earnings could support a higher price. That's why we would say that a P.E. ratio below maybe 30 is undervalued. However, if that market price per share goes way above 30 times the earnings per share, eh, that's probably telling us that it's overvalued like I showed you before. Darn it. Okay. Let me just show you Tesla, TSLA. Tesla has a price earnings ratio. In other words, the price right now is 76 times the earnings. That's scary. Let me show you another one. Nvidia. This is telling us that the price is 106 times the earnings. That's insane. That's way overvalued. On the other hand, there are companies where the P.E. ratio is substantially below what it might want to be. I'm trying to think of one that I saw. Um, um, MRNA, was that one one of them? No, that one's a little overvalued. Pfizer. Oh, there it is. There's the one I was thinking of. That's saying that the price per share is only eight, maybe what, nine times the earnings, which would tell us that in, mo in, in our modern era, that's way below. That price could support a those earnings. Let me put it this way. Those earnings could support a higher price. That's what it's telling us. I'm, I, you must forgive me. I, I paw around trying to give you different descriptions of the logic or the, or the meaning behind these numbers. Take it what you will. But this is saying, at the end of the day, Pfizer, its uh, price is only nine times its earnings, whereas we would expect it to be more like about 30 times the earnings. So that's what that price-earnings ratio tells us. And the market to book you take the market price divided by the book value. And what I'll do right here is I'll take the market value of this company. Oops, I don't want to do that one. Market value of the company, which I would walk over here to Yahoo. I want to get back to Kellogg here. <coughs> and I screw this up every time. <laughs> That's twenty billion five hundred million. So I'm going to try it. Twenty billion five hundred million divided by, and I'm giving it in millions because these I think are in millions. Going over here to the book value, total equity, four billion three seventy five. That should work, I think. Yeah, it did. This is actually not that spectacular. It's, it basically says the accounting total equity is just the sum of what shareholders paid the company to buy the stock at public offerings, in addition to how much 
income minus dividends the company had that belonged to the shareholders. It is a book value because it's just numbers from the past. $50 a share they sold the company uh, stock at uh, when they did their IPO and their seasoned offerings. And they also have accumulated money for net income that belongs to the shareholders. You add those up and you get the book value. The market value is a dynamic. It's a living number. The market cap is the price per share times the number of shares outstanding. It is a market assessment. And so in this case, this company has turned every dollar that was given to the company by the shareholders. The market thinks that that is now worth $4.69. Let me give it to you another way. I think I already did this one, but I'll explain it to you again. You, sir, are my son. Easy. I have regrets for that night, but okay. Now, I've put money into you through your 18 years. God, you are expensive. I, let's say I threw, I, I put in maybe a quarter of a million dollars. And then I put you through college. And that was ridiculous, 100,000 or so. So maybe 350,000. But now you've got your degree. And now I can take the present value of all your future earnings and figure out what your current value is from what I expect you to make in the future. Let's say that that is six million dollars or something like that. So I would take that six million divided by the 350 and that would be like a measure of the return on my investment in you. That's market to book. It's how much turned out from what was put in. Okay? Six million? Eh. Your case, five million. No, maybe 10 million. I don't know. Some of you, uh, right now, it's interesting because there is a lot of dispute about what you are worth. With a college degree, we, there are some that place the average at maybe six to eight million. Others put it higher than that at about 14 million. But there's no question about it that you will have a lot of value. We take the present value of all your future expected cash flows and it comes out pretty high. That's why when you are young, you buy term insurance and you buy a good shot of it. You, madam, an insur a life insurance agent comes to you and says, we'd like to sell you a policy. You would probably, you know, to replace you if you, God forbid, died, you might reach for about five to eight million dollars policy. However, if you get to my age, I can't even get a damn policy for $20. It'll pay $20 when I die. I'm trying to reaching for about a thousand because I need something to, you know, for the cremation fees, unless someone does a GoFundMe, like that's going to happen. So notice though, that as your life goes on, there's less value in the future. So that your life insurance would have you wouldn't want to buy as much because your replacement would, the replacement cost of you would be lower and lower. But when you're young, you want a higher amount of that insurance because there's so much value in you at your age. So don't blow it, okay? But that's ratio analysis. And it also, I want to tell you, I want to tell you a story about up here. This ROA, see this ROA and ROE? Now let me go back here and point out something about those. ROA, that is the return on the total assets of the company. And as you can see with Kellogg, ROA was 5.2%. These are percentages. But the return on equity is always going to be higher. Because the return on equity takes only the common stockholders' equity, total, total equity. 
Now remember, equity plus liabilities are the total assets. So if you divide by this smaller number than total assets, you will get a higher number. That's why the ROA will always be larger than the ROE, because the ROE has only some of the total assets added into it. Okay, here's something that, a, a caution. We want to see that ROE, uh, that ROE, ROA, we want to see that ROA go through the roof. We want to see that go up and up. Well, there's a downside to that. You need to ask yourself something. Total assets, let's let go back to this balance sheet just for a minute here. Do you see that the total assets, find them, has property net. Notice how that property net is a big, big thing. Now that net goes down with accumulated depreciation. The longer you hold an asset, the smaller that property gets. So you want to replace property, and then that fixed asset goes up again. That got, it gets to be a problem. If you see ROA going up nicely, you might want to ask yourself, is that ROA going up because net income is going up, or is it because total assets are going down? Well, why would total assets go down? If the company was letting assets depreciate and they weren't replacing those assets, they were just letting them burn out. This is what happened starting many, many years ago. Now, as I told you, I was in the oil and gas industry working uh, with uh, a group of wildcatters. Now, in the 1980s and 1990s, the refineries, even to this day, there is very little new refinery equipment, uh, new refineries being built. It's all extraction using the same refineries. Well, what the companies were doing was they were just cranking out more and more oil and refining them through refineries that were not getting upgraded, that were not being supplemented by new refineries and all of that. So what would happen is that the total assets of these companies were falling because the depreciation was making net go down on the fixed assets, which was making total assets slide, which means that a given net income divided by a smaller and smaller number was making the ROA larger and larger. To the casual analysts and to many who weren't even casual, they were professionals, they thought, this is incredible. Look at that ROA going up every year. By God, this is a winner. Well, then the price was paid. Those total assets that were depreciating, those refineries that were depreciating and not being rebuilt, maintained, replaced, well, they started doing something terrible in the early 2000s. They started exploding. Fires and communities of oil, of workers at those refineries, right in the path of those explosions and, and fires. Killed a lot of people. And it was all because those refineries, the money was not being spent to build up those refineries, to replace them, because that would have made ROA go down. As you let these things depreciate and you don't do anything to replace them or to upgrade them, well, that's going to make ROA go up, but it's also going to make those refineries more vulnerable to catastrophes. So that was the bottom line. Sometimes these ratios look like they're getting better and better, but ultimately the cost will happen. In replacing a completely wrecked refinery that is blown up, and in a human cost of people who were killed or permanently maimed and otherwise injured in the resulting explosions and fires. 
These numbers have meaning that goes far beyond just calculating it. That's why I don't really care if you can, uh, you're a wonderful calculator, you're a genius in arithmetic. What I care about is, you want, first of all, you say, what is this number telling us? And what could be the reasons, good and bad? That was like that inventory turnover ratio. It was cranking up in the 1910s uh, in a lot of companies. Well, spank me, that had a problem because then they were not ready for something that happened after it. Oh, mother's work is never done here. Oh, I, here's one last thing I want to do. I'm going to copy these ratios over a year. Bring these over. Bring these over. And bring these over. And finally, I could do only two years because those balance sheets I'm using have only two years. The income statements have three years, but I'll get errors if I do too much. So now we go back. Okay. The current ratio. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's okay. It's those ones that have idiotic songs on them. That <laughs> Anyway, notice that their liquidity has slightly improved. Over the from 21 to 22, do you see that slightly improved? But their acid has gone down slightly. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I had no, it has gone up. Okay, so that's good. But their burn ratio has slid. Remember, burn is just cash over current liabilities, so they have become slightly less liquid. They're not keeping as much cash as a percentage of liabil current liabilities. Okay, gross margin. Well, that has slid. In other words, their wholesale costs have gone up faster than their prices on their goods. Okay, that's what it is. And again, you notice that idea, well, all these companies are raising their prices, and it's just, they're just ripping us off for better profits. Bullshit. You should see right here, that this company, Kellogg, did not pass along all of its wholesale price increases to the consumers. That's something to note. Operating margin slid too. All their, well, that's probably largely because gross margin slid. So their net margin really took a paddling. God, net margin down, what, 40%? Yikes, that's bad. Okay, and then look at your ROA, it's gone down, and the ROE has gone down too. That's not good, that's a sales problem. Yeah, sales problem right there. Debt to total assets, whoa, they have gotten rid of debt. You see how? Debt is no, is, has fallen from 34.5% of their total assets all the way down to 20, uh, less than 29%. But interestingly, their times interest earned, how many times over they can pay their interest with their operating income, has slid too. Well, now that's interesting. Well, I see why. It's because their operating margin took a, took a dump. So they don't have as much at the line right above to pay their fixed interest expenses. They're not in any trouble, but... Now, inventory turnover. They have slowed down the turnover of their inventory. They're keeping more. They're clearing their warehouses some, somewhat less, somewhat less rapidly than they had before. Well, and their total asset turnover, however, has picked up, probably because their fixed assets are slipping, which we saw, well, let me look over here. Property net, it's gone down a little bit, but not that much. Anyway, if you have a thing where you like to see what numbers are telling you, not necessarily you add and subtract and all that, but if you have a thing where these are almost like uh, forensic puzzles, where we are looking at the numbers 
to see what's going on. It's sort of like a murder scene. I go in, madam, I find that you are dead. Well, I can walk out. Yep, the body's dead. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go have donuts. Or I can hang around and say, now why did this body become a dead body? And I can begin to look around at all the clues. And that's what we did here with these ratios, is we're looking at what the numbers tell us. Your body temperature is now at 76.2. Well, I got the number. Now, why is it that? Oh, that means that if we know the constant uh, cool-off rate of a body to ambient temperature, we can backtrack to when you died. That's what we're doing with these ratios. The ratio, yeah, that's a number. What does it tell us? That's the weirdest-ass example. <laughs> But anyway, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to save this sheet now and I'll upload it to Canvas to replace the one that's there which was incomplete. And again, I encourage you, save that sheet. If you want to try to make a template out of it, you can. You've got the numbers. Now, I'm going to do just a little bit here. Well, no. My God, that's the latest it's been today. Well, yes, of course it is. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.